Welcome to the Firhill Right Respecting Schools podcast. This award-winning show is brought to you by the pupils of Firhill High School in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, today's guest is Elaine C. Smith, one of our famous Scottish actors. And today we will, uh, yeah, we will be focusing on Articles 28, the uh, access to education, and 31, the right to rest and play. Uh, thank you for coming into our school, Elaine, and onto the podcast. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm very old now, and uh, my name is Elaine Smith. I'm an actress, and uh, or actors, I like to say, no uh, sexism there, we're all one actor. Um, I've been in the business of show now for over 40 years, um, on television, theatre, film, radio, you name it. Um, I've just done everything that was offered to me, basically. Um, and uh, I'm also a grandmother, mother, wife, sister, and ex-teacher at this very school. So there you are. That gives you a bit of background, doesn't it? Um, what do you remember from your time as a teacher at Firhill and in general? Um, it was in... I got my job here in 1979, it would be, and taught here till 1981. Uh, so two and a half, three years. I had a fab time here, uh, fantastic staff, a real feeling that uh, education mattered and that kids mattered. It mattered to me as well that, uh, that the state education that was provided free for everyone was of a high standard and that I wanted to be part of that. I was also part of lots of strikes as uh, teachers. I remember standing outside the gate here with my placards, uh, raging at the teachers who walked past us uh, and, and didn't join the picket line, but went in and sat in the staff room with a cup of tea. And it never ceased to amaze me that they still took the pay rise when we got it. I was like, but you didn't, you didn't lose any pay. But anyway, so that caused quite a bit of uh, upset and division, as you can imagine, within the, the school at times. But uh, I, I always was uh, very involved in my trade union and whatever job I've done and, and a belief in justice and, and, and fair play, if you like. And at that point, teachers' pay was pretty low and conditions were not uh, even at times as good as they are now, even though they're not perfect. Um, but I I was lucky in that I was at a sort of forefront or vanguard of uh, teaching drama in secondary schools because most people didn't believe it was worth it. But drama wasn't actually just about teaching people to be trees and how to uh, you know, how to speak in a, a received pronunciation accent or any of that. It was actually about developing a whole kid, a whole child. And that I could see immense difference in the, the pupils that took drama and their attitude to other subjects, how they were able to speak out in class, how they were able, even if you weren't that academic, you know, how to conduct yourself at an interview, just to have a bit of self-confidence and and uh, be more articulate than, than they would have been when they came along. So, but actually getting that through to the rest of the staff was probably harder than with the teachers because the staff, funnily enough, I was talking about to my own daughters who went in Glasgow to their local um, comprehensive and, and the modern studies teacher there was fine at letting the boys away to go and play football. But when my daughter would be late from her higher drama class, 
coming in, it would be, we don't have time for these non-academic subjects. And there was a lot of sobriety. There was a lot of fights with the English department here as well because the English teachers generally believe they should be teaching drama and that our, our speciality as drama teachers, you know, we had done a degree, we had done a postgraduate as well. So we believed in the subject and we believed that it was actually very different from literally just teaching kids about the text or getting them to read out in class, which is very valid and very good. But I, I, so there were various battles along the way, but we were lucky in that we had a head of department and we had, at that point, a head teacher in John Grantwood who actually believed that drama mattered, that music, drama and art mattered to the lives of kids. And we were one of the first schools, I think, after the Munn and Dunning report that allowed kids, even if you were doing five hires, you could also take a creative subject, as it was called, or you were you were made to take a creative subject, which I, I think helped elevate it a wee bit. We brought exams in from England as well, uh, so that it gave it a bit of accreditation, a CSE and an O grade, uh, an O level, because we didn't have exams then. And I'm glad to say, you know, my, as I say, my own daughter was able to go on both of them and do higher drama eventually. But it was it was a bit the dark ages. But I have to say, Edinburgh was, was further ahead than the rest of the country at that point. And this school was involved in that. So, But I'd great to have still got pals that uh, I taught beside here. Um, who I've still got lots of pupils that come and see shows of me. And, and of course, they're in their 50s. And they go, hi, I miss. And I'm like, I remember them when they were... 14 so uh they, but they remember me and also they have the advantage of seeing me on screen so they've got more of an idea what i look like when they turn up with three kids i have no idea there but they remind me so i do i do remember that time in edinburgh as has been a really really special time and in this building as really brilliant time in my life uh, hard work by the way hard work <laughs> Uh, do you have a positive memory from your time here or like a highlight of your... Well, lots of them are. I suppose I talked beside my husband. I met, uh, I met him. He taught modern studies economics here. Um, but he arrived after I'd arrived. So, uh, uh, and the, the kids, of course, the pupils thought that was hilarious. <laughs> that Mr. Morton and Miss Smith, um, we they'd see us getting in the car together and all that. And that was like, Ooh! all that stuff. <laughs> I do remember we did, uh, I used to do the school show, which was a real, um, I, I did lots of different types of shows with uh, students that uh, allowed them to create their own work, like voice and movement programmes and, but we did things like the Dracula Spectacular and we did lots of musical sort of things. But of course, you had to do it after school generally with a, a drama club. So we had instigated two or three drama clubs, and and six years particularly were brilliant. I mean, when I think I was only twenty one myself, twenty two, so I was more ages with with the sixth years than I was with the rest of the staff. Um, but they were great, and the, the guys who who did sound and lighting and were really keen to learn that sort of stuff and scripting and assisting and directing and because as you will all know, drama and putting on a production it's about a team. If if one part of the team isn't working properly, then the whole thing and that more than anything teaches uh, young people particularly that that you can't go anywhere in life just on your own. You need a really good team beside you. 
and it's not just about talent it is about the whole machine working um so we did we used to do one with the teachers at christmas and we 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 did one where at the time rubik's cubes had just come out so i was the evil professor rubik's and um and uh, Bob, my husband, Mr. Morton, as he was then, he was the superhero to fight me as the baddie sort of thing. So, and at one point we had to kiss, well, there were kids under their seats, if you can imagine. <laughs> you know, if he kissed me, that then stopped me from being evil or whatever. So there were loads of teachers involved, loads of the art department doing the set, all of that. But uh, the students loved it because it was the teachers basically making an arse of themselves um, <laughs> and uh, there's nothing better than that as we know um, so that's a that's a sort of daft memory from being here and um, and so lot, lots of good memories as I said earlier of friendships and and pupils and and a real a real creative time in my life that I really loved doing but in actual fact what I realised was because I was so young when I graduated actually I didn't know enough Although I'd done the academic work and although I'd done the teacher training, I needed more life experience. I needed to go out there into the world. And, and so it, it was that that made me decide that I wanted to. And I performed a lot during this. I performed with Edinburgh University Theatre Company. I'm a singer. So I was singing with lots of bands and all that in Edinburgh. And I realised I had to do more of that and, and maybe turn it into being professional. But uh, leaving teachers, I mean, they were really understanding. I got a job and I gave them six weeks notice and I was gone and, and suddenly in theatre. So um, they were really, really supportive and understanding in the school, which was great because it all could have gone terribly wrong. <laughs> but I, I did it and got a lot of support and a lot of friends. So loads of really good memories here. Uh, what was your own schooling like and your memories from that time? Um, I was one of the first um, of the, you wouldn't know anything about this really, but when, because when, I'm so old, but there used to be things called senior secondaries and junior secondaries, right? You obviously had your private schools, which were very selective about whether you could pay and also how academic you were, whatever. But uh, the school system in Scotland was divided into senior secondary and junior secondary. So if you're going to do your hires, you went to the senior secondary. And if you were just going to do maybe up to O level or O grade or no exams at all and going to get a trade or whatever, um, you were bumped to the junior secondary. So there was a, a, a real um, divide between those schools. And that a disappointment if you went to the junior secondary, then that meant you were a bit of a dunce. Now, Many, many people who went to junior secondary ended up going on and running their own businesses and going on and going to college and all of that because, as you know, not all kids develop at the same time and at the same rate. So uh, in the 1970, 69, 70, it was uh, scrapped, basically. And um, they brought in a, a comprehensive system, which meant that all kids from all areas of all abilities went to the same school. Right, so where I lived in Lanarkshire, we all went to a school that had been a junior secondary called Breithurst, and so I was one of the first fifth, six-year pupils there, along with another team. So you got bright kids in there as well, and uh, it, it still wasn't completely mixed ability. They still did stream the kids, so one A one to one A four were did hires and and uh, standard grades or whatever, and then. 
uh, the last three classes were left to weave baskets or play football or whatever, which is not the best <laughs> educational policy in the world. But um, <clears throat> it was there was a feeling of, uh, regardless of your background, regardless of how much money you had or any of those things, you you were all in the one school. And uh, I had lots of great times there as well. Uh, lots of, you know, we were crazy teachers. There were always teachers that shouldn't have been near kids. I taught besides <laughs> some of them here as well. <laughs> uh, and and we, my husband and I were talking about that last night. There were uh, pupils at my, my daughter's school who were nice people, but should not have been teachers. Um, and could not keep order in a class, could not, you know, the kids just, you know, my daughter was describing last night how one of the boys in her class, every time his teacher turned away, just threw a ball and it, it just went past the teacher's head, she would turn and he was able to catch it and get rid of it. And when the teacher turned around, um, you know, she was completely flummoxed, but, and she would go into rage and all of that and not know what had happened. So that, that sorry, you you're practicing that, aren't you? There, he's going. How would I get that? Um, so, you know, I have mixed experiences of school. Some fantastic teachers who encouraged me, who who didn't see uh, talent and creativity as being something bad, or something that detracted from your academic work, if you like. So uh, I, I was really lucky in that. And I had a, a, there was a music department that did shows. There was no drama department at all. So we did Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. And we had to go, gaily, tripping, lightly, skipping. And we did all those sort of, you know, that had no relevance to anybody in Motherwell, except that the head of the department, who I liked very much, who had, uh, in my book I write about me, his name was Cameron P. Merriweather. As I said, that's a Protestant name if ever there was one. But anyway, don't go into that. Don't don't print that. But I did put it in my book, so I suppose you could. Uh, which he wrote to me, uh, thanking me for the mention, and then signed it, Cameron P. Merriweather, Protestant. A <laughs> 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 Protestant and proud at the end of it. Um, so uh, Dorothy Adams, really good teachers who put shows together. And it was then, even in Gilbert and Sullivan, I said, oh, do I have to be one of the girls singing gaily tripping? Can, can I not be something else? We were doing Pirates of Penzance and they let me be a policewoman because there's a whole, I don't, you probably don't know it, but in Pirates of Penzance there's a whole very famous song where uh, all the policemen with their truncheons sing. Ta-da, 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 ta-da. So I was allowed to be a woman, a WPC, and with a, a smaller first year with me. So it was like, and actually now when I look back, it was a real reference to old variety in Scotland where in Glasgow, in the Glasgow Empire, you had the Maupaw and Wayne sketch, as we called it, mother, father and child. So in, you know, moaning about some men at the, the council offices and there were comedy sketches. So this was, I didn't know anything about it, but obviously a forerunner of that. And I got the first good review of my career in the Motherwell Times, if you don't mind. Um, saying I was the funniest thing in it or whatever. And it was, it, it, I suppose it sparked that sort of irreverence in me of, of not always wanting to follow the way it should be. Can we not just have a bit of imagination and creativity? Can we not just put something else in? And, and I, I saw a rebellious thing in me. And I've always had that desperate to be good, but also quite rebellious at the same time which I think a lot of people have. And uh, so that, and, and I wrote my first play there as well, 
which went on in school because, and it was called the rehearsal. And they allowed me to do it for some teachers thing uh, or big parent teachers event because they had basically loads of people wanting to do this concert and it would have been boring as anything. So I turned all the acts in uh, this idea of making it like they all came to audition and all the acts came in and, and we had an audition panel and all of that and we could say, no, thanks, we could cut it off, we could do all that. So it was my first um, sort of uh, foray into doing something like that and it gave me a bit of confidence. But uh, I, I left straight after fifth year after doing my hires because I got into drama school, I got into the Conservatoire or the Royal Scottish mm -hmm. Academy, as it was called then. I didn't really know what it was. I just had a, a careers officer who basically I wanted to be everything. Everything the careers <laughs> officer said, I'd go, I'd let you do that. I'd let you do that. And then I realised, actually, I didn't really want to do all that. I wanted to act being all of those, you know, an air stewardess or whatever, which I ended up doing. And he just said, uh, you know, I had... Um, that attitude of I'd a lot of extrovert energy, as they called it, a show off basically. Um, and uh, I thought that uh, my English teacher thought that drama school was a good thing to do. And I, I auditioned, I didn't want to be an actor, I wanted to be a teacher. And went along and auditioned when I was only 17. And I still to this day don't know how I get in, but I did. <laughs> um, because it was the most bizarre thing. You know, you had to take a leotard and tights and and there were all these girls in sort of ballet outfits with her hair in a bun. And, and I was in 1975 uh, trouser suit, you know. <laughs> and at that point, uh, our trousers were really long because we wore platforms. Mm -hmm. So they wanted you in your bare feet. So I had these trousers that were about a foot and a half too long that just flapped everywhere. Um, and... And asked to, you know, you had to take a piece and read and you had to do all of that and talk to them. But I'd never done movement in my life. I'd never done anything like that. So going in there and auditioning, I was, I think I just made them laugh. Um, and there, there were instances in, in that where I did make a bit of an arse of myself, but they let me in anyway. So that, I, I left school in 1975. It's a long answer. There are lots of... Uh, I told you, one question and it'll be a long answer. Who's next? It's me. Uh, what song would remind you of your time at school? <laughs> well, <laughs> the song that reminds me of probably my worst behaviour and why I didn't do as well as in my O grades. I did well in my hires, but in my O grades as I should have, was this song. It was My Brother Jake by Free. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Apart from uh, Free were a really heavy rock band, by the way. And that was the gentlest song that they actually did. 
And there's a story behind it. I can't remember the exact story, but my brother Jay, and it was, I think his brother was disabled. And so this song was written about, you don't, you don't have to know what the world's about and all of that. Those are, I didn't know that at the time. It was, uh, we didn't have internet and any of those things. We had Radio 1 and we had the Johnny Walker show uh, after, uh, I think, 12 to 3 or something like that. And I spent most of the time supposedly studying for my old grades listening to Radio 1. <laughs> so actually what you don't hear in that is my mother coming into the bedroom going, get that radio off! <laughs> so um, that, that, as soon as I hear that song, I'm back in my my bedroom in Newt Hill, which is a wee minor village outside Lanarkshire, uh, listening to the radio, supposedly studying. <laughs> uh, yeah, so considering acting is such like an inherently expressive and like empathetic medium, I was wondering, how do you think drama and expressive arts promote like equality and diversity? I think in every, on every level, um, it can uh, help equality and diversity. Uh, when I went to drama school, it was the first time I'd ever met a gay person. I'd never met a gay man. I never met. I didn't. I didn't really know about gay women. Um, they became fantastic friends and pals, and it opened my eyes to a whole other world. And that within theatre and television, particularly, there was a, a freedom to be who you wanted to be. If you, it was the first time I met, uh, you know, guys I knew who were in drag, who loved that, who wore makeup. Now this is nine, this is Glasgow in 1975-76. I remember my then boyfriend being completely shocked at, you know, a drama school disco with, with guys in dresses, you know, <laughs> dancing around poles and all that. And, and me just thinking, this is fantastic, you know, these, and it, it bred in me a sort of tolerance and about diversity. Um, I had never in, in my high school, um, you, were, you we didn't even know what gay meant then. There was no one in my village. There was no one in Motherwell. It obviously was a factor in so many people's lives, but it was like a terrible secret. It was like a, a source of shame for people. Um, also, uh, an element of racism as well, uh, with uh, other, it was just at a time when more and more Indian, Pakistani people were, were moving to Scotland, Chinese, people like that, but they were very, kept very separate from mainstream society. And uh, I, I really, uh, although you have a lot of um, commentators going on about people being too woke or whatever, if you go back to those dark times in the 70s when I was at school and that casual racism, that that unbelievable misogyny that was there. The theatre, not that it was without its faults, but going into the theatre, and I also went into political theatre. I joined 784 Theatre Company and Wildcat. And 784, I had done my thesis on at university, and 784 basically means 7% of the population own 84% of the wealth, right? Actually, now it's about 4% own 94% of the wealth. It's worse. But at that point, John McGrath is a fantastic uh, playwright. He wrote The Chief at the Stag and the Black Black Oil and various others that you'll probably have studied over the years. But he gave me my first job. And in actual fact, 
he phoned the office here at the school to get me to come down for my audition. So, and I was teaching, it was really weird, I was teaching my, my kids about uh, the Shiva, the Stag and the Black Black Oil, and uh, one of the uh, secretaries came in and said, Miss Smith, there's a John McGraw on the phone for you, how weird was that? Anyway, um, and I got the job and left, but so I wanted theatre with a purpose, I didn't just want, uh, oh, here I am, and, you know, even now the thought of being in an inspector calls it Pitlochry, no offence to anybody who does that, that's not what I want to do, you know. Uh, even my stand-up and all the stuff I've done, I wanted to say something. I, want, I, I also want to do stuff that makes people laugh and all that, but generally the choices I've made over the years have been about what does this say to people? Does it move people? Does it... Does it anger people? Does it get them involved? So politics has run through all of that. And if you are political at all, then then you know about diversity. But we still are in Scotland in you know, 2023. How many female artistic directors are there? How many female playwrights are there? A lot more than there were when I came out, but literally, and the irony being that 80% of theatre audiences or 70% definitely are women. And if men go to the theatre, not gay men, but if, if uh, men go to the theatre, invariably their partners are women, buy the tickets to take them there. Uh, yet all the plays are written by men and all they're all directed by men. So, of course, I, when I set up my own company, putting on Shirley Valentine, I knew there was an audience out there. We completely sold out. You put on Jean Brodie, you put on Ver Calendar Girls, I was in that as well, the same, the, a, a huge female audience untapped that has come forward now. And, you know, particularly commercial producers will always go, oh, actually, we can make money doing that. So that has increased diversity as well. And, and more uh, access for uh, not enough, but more, I mean, I did uh, Red Dust Road a few years ago in the National Theatre, written by Jackie Kay, who is Scots Nigerian. Um, you know, and, and interestingly, in Strathclyde Uni the other night, they've just called a, the whole pla a plaza in the middle, the Jackie Key Plaza, which is fabulous during, uh, you know, Black History Month. Um, to have that in the middle of Glasgow at this point, that would have been unheard of 40, 30, 40 years ago. So I do think the arts and uh, culture and theatre, um, television, music, has pushed those boundaries of diversity. And, and um, you'll always get a kickback against it, which we're experiencing quite a lot at the moment, but it's progressive, it's the way forward. Um, since drama and theatre is such a hit or miss industry, yeah. what was your thought process behind moving from teaching to being a TV actress? Uh, well, I went into theatre first. I was in theatre for three years at least touring and going around and I would say that to everybody you know if if you leave drama school and go straight into a soap it's going to be really difficult for your street into a, a telly show it's very difficult to open that up and and go into something else because you become immediately recognizable and known for that uh, I love the fact that I did three years or more touring around the country doing shows in for Borderline, The Lyceum, uh, Wildcat, 784, The Tron, all these different uh, theatre companies, to go and do that before I got my television break. And then I was lucky in that the comedy unit, as it was then, was based in BBC Scotland. And they had an attitude of... Because, remember, still, 
90, 95% of the comedy comes with, with a, a received pronunciation accent from the South. Um, that's why, you know, something like Rab C or Still Game or Two Doors Down, for Scots actually hearing our own accent. I mean, Billy Connolly was the breakthrough in that, that there was a legitimising of working class language. Um, and we sort of followed on with that with Robbie Coltrane and people like that. But uh, it was, it, you know, it's still really, really difficult to, to move that forward. So getting that chance to go into, uh, with Robbie Coltrane, I did a tele called Laugh I Nearly Paid My Licence Fee. Um, we did, I did a few bits of that and then I did a, a radio season called Naked Radio. And that was all about learning. Because I didn't know everything. You know, you, you might have gone to drama school and you might have done a bit of theatre, but television is a completely different ballgame. Radio is a completely different ballgame. So learning that and realising that, one, I had timing, always, always matters. You can be the funniest person in the world, but if you can't time a gag, forget it. So um, the uh, learning and watching other actors... My first naked radio was with Gregor Fisher, Tony Roper, people like that. That was how, for instance, Tony, when we naked radio became naked video, which was a big comedy sketch series, out of which grew Rab Cines, but as one of the characters. But Tony, when I was working with him, went, you're a, you're a woman, nobody will put this play on. I've written a play called The Steamy. And I read it, and I thought, with songs, this would be less, as we call it, upper close in Glasgow you know, a bit too maudlin, a bit too, wasn't it great when we all went, no, it wasn't, it was, it would give me a washing machine any day, but what have we lost for the sake of that? And the songs let us do that. And that was, I took that to Wildcat and said, you haven't done anything about women and women's work. And, and that, but accident, not that I was thinking this would be a massive hit, but it became this massive thing. And I think, I think that transition, um, you're learning all the time. I'm 65 now, I'm still learning. I'm still looking at people and going, oh, that's great. And the thing I say to younger actors is watch. Watch what they do. Watch how they time that gag. I sit in a theatre and I hear really good young actors go steamroller through laughs because they're not listening to the audience. They're so busy going, I've got my next line to come out, I better say it. It's written that way, listen to them. In theatre, they're part of it. In television, it's not. Television, it's very different. You've no audience there. Timing is all very different as well. So it was, it was a learning transition. But one actually that I I found easy in in a way that maybe some actors wouldn't. Um, children's rights are at the forefront of our school aims and ethos. How do you think rights have improved for people <clears throat> over your career in education and in the entertainment world? Um. Well, I can't read that without my specs. All oh, right, two minutes. Oh, two minutes. In that question, no way. Um, I, I, I think it was it was poo pooed when I was a teacher that children would have any rights, really, um, and uh, I was always on the side of listen to them, listen to what they have to say. You might not agree with everything. And the grievances that they have about the school or the staff or what's going on might be not what you want to hear, but it's worth listening to. And and I I do think, 
you know, you only have to look at some of the things that have come out recently, you know, from that era, the 70s, the Jimmy Savile stuff, the the uh, Yorkshire Ripper uh, investigations, uh, to see how the voices of the marginalised women and particularly young people and children were not listened to and not valued in any way to when they would go to it, you only have to see the level of child abuse stuff that is, has come out over those years. It's, and everybody goes, it wasn't like that. And you go, wait a minute, this is from 40 years ago. This is 30 years ago. These, these things are really valid. They're hard to hear. They're difficult to deal with. So I do believe that we've moved, not enough, but that uh, advocating for young people and children's voices is something we have to continue with. But uh, it's it's difficult for adults to actually hear. Well, thank you for talking with us today. Pleasure.